you're staying behind, we're continuing with 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. All right, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, and last week we went through verse 3 to verse 8. So i just like to read that again, verse 3 to verse 8. The Bible says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, for verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. And so in those two verses, we spoke about speaking truth, how Paul spake the truth of there will be afflictions, though all of those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we know that Paul rather told them the truth than to tell them a lie that made them feel good. And after the church service last week, I got someone sent me a quote that I think beautifully sums up this point. And this quote says, It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Because that's essentially what falsehood does at the end. It makes someone believe something that's not true and could end them up in hell. And so Paul rather decided to tell the truth regardless of how inconvenient it was. Let's read further in verse 5. It says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. And so we looked at what Paul considered vain labor. Essentially, vain labor to him was not preaching the gospel. Vain labor to him would have been people who had no fruit. That based on this preaching that was brought to them, they, they had no fruit. So it's people reacting to the gospel, but making you know, it makes no difference in their life. No repentance, no walking in the light, no fruit, nothing. That would have made Paul's labor in vain. Look at verse 6. It says, But now when Timotheus came unto, um, from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and, the, and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. And so there we looked at the connection between love and faith. And if you remember, if you were here last week, I, sh- I showed you how love leads to faith and faith leads to love. And that the faith that Christ showed to us and the love that Christ showed to us and the the surety of that love that we have if we are saved increases our faith. And because of that increased faith, that stability we have, we are now able to better love those around us. So faith leads to love. And then verse 7 to 8, Therefore, brethren, when we um, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So lastly, we discussed the importance of community and how we need to go through trials together. The strong lifting the weak and those who have gone through trials, encouraging those and praying for those who are going through trials. And this is that what's happening here. But do you notice how in verse 5, he says, I sent to know your faith. In verse 6, he says, Timothy brought good tidings of your faith. In verse 7 he says that we were comforted over you in, aff- in affliction and distress by your faith. In verse 10 we'll see night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul was very concerned about the faith 
of these people, how they can grow in their faith, and how their faith is an encouragement to Paul. And so faith is something we're going to definitely look at today. But let's start in verse 9. Read verse 9 to 13. Verse 9 says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Now, why is Paul thanking in verse 9? Why is he thanking? He's thanking God for these believers who had no one to shepherd them for months, who got saved and who were standing strong in their faith, who through afflictions stood strong, didn't waver. They preached the gospel. They turned from idols to serve the living God. These are these people he's talking about. And when he hears this good report, when Timothy comes back and he tells them of how these people are serving God, he just praises God. He just thanks God for what God has done in these people's lives. And so essentially what he's saying in verse 9, in verse 9 he says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. He's essentially saying, how do we thank God enough for all the joy we are experiencing because of you? How can we thank God enough? Because Paul realizes this is God's work. And God used him as a vessel, and what a blessing to be a part of that. And so true and lasting joy, not happiness, true and lasting joy is found in Christ. Have a look at 1 John. True and lasting joy is found in Christ. 1 John chapter 1. Because true and lasting joy is found in Christ, and Christ was found in these people, Paul could find joy in being accompanied with them. Joy was in, uh, Christ was in these people, and because Christ was in these people, joy accompanied them. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see there how John is calling believers to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father. And that that connection of joy, that connection, that fellowship that leads to joy. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about that fellowship, that good report that he heard from these Thessalonians and how that led Paul to joy because of Christ being in those people. And so we can be the source of joy for each other. If, some, if God is working in someone's life, if God is doing something great in someone's life, we should joy with, rejoice with those people. And we can be each other's source of joy. Now, back to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, the next thing that Paul, the other thing that Paul mentions here is thankfulness. He says, for what thanks can we render again um, to God? So, Thankfulness. This thankfulness I want to remind you of is coming while Paul is in affliction. In verse 7 we saw, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. This thankfulness is coming from a position where Paul is in affliction. Also, it's coming from a place while Paul, in verse 10, he knows that 
their faith is yet not perfect. So it's not, he's not being thankful for that there's just good stuff and so he only has thanks to give. He's in affliction. He's in distress. He's amongst the people who still have a lot to learn and a lot to grow. But he finds reason to thank God for. So it's not just thankfulness when there is only things to thank God for. Have a look at um, 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. And verse 18. It says here in verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. The verse doesn't say for everything give thanks. All right? It doesn't say for, it says in everything. In other words, you will be in times where it's not going well, but in that time you can give thanks. Right? You don't have to thank God for the bad thing that is happening in your life. Yes, can that thing yield fruit? Can it work for the good? Yes, it can. But in that moment, you're not going to want to thank God for that evil thing. And that's fine. But you can find things to thank God for in that time. You can thank Him for the hope that you have of God working this for His good. And for your confirmation or confirming to, um, conforming to this image of Christ. So in everything, you need to give thanks. Well, what is, the, what is the risk of unthankfulness? I'm sure you're familiar with Romans 1 verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They became vain in their imaginations because of an unthankful heart. And so an unthankful heart is your first step away from God. An unthankful heart is your first step to have your thoughts not on Him and risking your thoughts to lead to vanity. So you don't want to go down that route. It's the start of your backsliding. The second thing, look at, at first, uh, 2 Timothy, a few pages to the right. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. The second thing why you don't want to be unthankful, we see in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse... Let's read from verse 1. It says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, um, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Unthankful. Do you see how it is something that accompanies the degrading society of the end times. An unthankful heart is something that accompanies the degrading society of the end times. And so you don't want to be a part of that society that is living contrary to God's will. Living as part of the, the um, I want to say, the curse of the end times. And so don't live in an, uh, an unthankful state. As we sang, sang this morning, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. On the way to church this morning, I was, I was a bit nervous and a bit concerned about this morning's message. And, you know, I just started thanking God for everything that He is doing and for how great He is. You know, it, it does wonders for your soul to just think on God and just focus on Him. I want to read a few quotes to you on, about thankfulness. This one is by John MacArthur. It says, A thankful heart is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. 
It stands in stark contrast to pride, selfishness, and worry. And it helps fortify the believer's trust in the Lord and reliance of his provision, even in the toughest times. No matter how choppy the seas become, a believer's heart is buoyed by constant praise and gratefulness to the Lord. He says in the beginning, a thankful heart is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. Another quote, this is by C.S. Lewis. He says, We ought to give thanks for all fortune, if it is good, because it is good, if bad, because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of eternal of our eternal country. All right, that's a great if it is good because it is good, and if it is bad because it works in us, patience, humility, and contempt of this world. This is by Tim Keller. He says, It's one thing to be grateful. It's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. And this one was really, I don't know, just so obvious, but it really stood out to me. Elizabeth Elliot, she said, God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. <laughs> it's so simple, but I was just, I just had to sit and think about that for a while. <laughs> God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. So does your heart reflect this thanks, this contentment in God? just to trust Him? Does your heart reflect this? Do you trust Him enough to thank Him even in tough times? It's thankfulness. It is thankfulness that will keep us afloat when trials come and keep our hearts from falling away from God. It's thankfulness that will hold us close to Him. All right, let's continue to verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It says here, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. First thing, why does Paul not just pray that God would give them more faith? Why does he want to see them? Why does he not just pray and say, Lord, increase their faith? Because faith is not this magical thing that many Christians think today. Faith is not something that, you know, you, all of a sudden you pray and there you have more faith. You get saved and you have more faith. It's almost like you almost put a spell on yourself, you know. It's like abracadabra. I just have faith. Like, that's not how faith works. And that's why Paul understands that, yes, he can pray for them. And yes, he can pray that God would guard their hearts. But faith does not just magically happen. Faith comes by teaching. Faith comes by knowledge. Faith comes through trials. Teaching, knowledge, and trials. And that is why it was critical for Paul to get to these people. He says in verse 10, Night and day, praying exceedingly that your faith may increase. No. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So, he wants to go teach them truth. He wants to go show them how to grow as Christians, how to abstain from sin, and how to endure 
afflictions. Without this guidance and knowledge, their faith will be shaken. Remember how in verse 5 we read that, For this cause, when I, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Paul knew that their faith was critical for them if they were to stand um, as Christians. So there are common misconceptions, or there's the common misconception today that faith and knowledge oppose each other. There's this idea that somehow if you want to believe in something, you kind of not, you shouldn't know a lot about it because as soon as you know a lot about it, then you can have blind faith in it, right? So there's this idea that faith and knowledge kind of oppose each other, but not, it's not a biblical principle. People think that faith is the absence of knowledge. It is blind. It has no evidence. You just have to believe. Many people say, you just have to believe, right? But what is that belief based on? Or, what if what you're believing and trusting God for is not biblical? Right? We believe God that He will do this, but it's probably completely against His will. Do you understand? So, just believing on no knowledge, no truth, is worthless. So this idea that blind faith is commended in the Bible couldn't be further from the truth. Have a look at Romans. Romans chapter 10. So the first thing that I want to speak about is that faith is connected to what you know or knowledge. Faith is connected to knowledge. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, I'm sure you know this verse. Romans 10, verse 17 says, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith grows. Have a look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. And it says here in verse 15 that from a child, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The holy scriptures made him wise unto salvation through faith. You cannot disconnect the scripture, what you know about it from faith. I, at a stage, yo, I'm going to try and draw this. This is a book. I have to say that otherwise you have no idea what it is, okay? That is the cross, right? So, and let's say here, is salvation and sanctification. Now it says, faith, here's our faith, comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. So God gives us the Word. There's truth in the Word. The Gospel is in the Word. All we need to know, all the instruction is in the Word. That Word, faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. So the word leads to faith. Then faith, as it says there, your faith, which is in Christ Jesus, which is able to save you. And then look at verse, well, verse 16 actually confirms that God is the giver of the word. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here's the end. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You see sanctification? And so God inspires the word. He gives the word. We have the word. The word leads to faith. Okay? And that faith leads to our salvation and our sanctification. Do you see how faith is not, it's not based on something, you, on nothing. <laughs> it's based on something God has said. It's based on truth. The next thing I want to say is faith is based on evidence. Faith is based on evidence. Look at... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Faith is based on evidence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse 4. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 says, And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then the twelve. And after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Do you see how Christ's resurrection was spoken of? It was a fact of the day. It was seen by many people. There were many witnesses. And all these witnesses, as it says in verse 6, about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. So it was people, other people could go fact check. It was people, other people could go speak to and hear about this and test whether the, their, their, what they're saying, what they're claiming is true. It's based on evidence. It wasn't bind, based on somebody's idea and some, started some cult and then it died out. That was not what it was. It was based on evidence and people could fact check it. Look, have a look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, you know this, the first verse, pretty sure. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Do you see how it says evidence and then it says not seen? At first this was almost, it felt like a contradiction to me. But the problem with that is, is that you think that the only type of evidence is what you see. Right? The only type, that's not the only type of evidence we have. It's not just what we see, all right? So, faith is the substance of things. Ho- um, the thi- faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtain good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen um, were not made of things which do appear. So essentially what he's saying, if you look at creation, the things which are made 
you will see evidence for God. You will see evidence of what he has done. Now, were any of you there when God created? No, right? So you didn't see it. Does it mean there's no evidence? Were you here when this school was built? No? Okay. Is there evidence that someone built it? Of course, even though you didn't see it, right? So there's evidence. Faith is based on evidence. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. We looked at this about creation. But then there's also countless verifiable historical facts, scientific facts, archaeological facts, prophecies that are made hundreds of years before an event that came to pass, proven historically from neutral sources. So there's a lot of evidence for believing what the Bible says, for believing what God has said. It is not just blind faith. Have a look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1. The last thing I want to say about faith is that faith grows in trials. Faith grows in trials. We, we know that from First Timothy, or First Thessalonians where we're studying that these trials worked faith in these people. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. Do you see how he says he's, he's at his end? He's, he, death is all around him. Death is death sentence on him. And then he says, he, was, he says in verse 8 that he's pressed out of measure, above strength. And then he says in verse 9 that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. So even if this costs my life, even if I am tempted beyond what I can take and it costs my life, I know about the resurrection. I know about Christ. I know what He has done. So your faith is placed in Christ in that moment. In verse 10 it says, Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. That is a complete transition of faith. Nothing of himself completely resting in Christ. And you see, it's not just a future hope. It's not that he delivered us from so great death only. It says, and doth deliver. Christ is the one still delivering you, still taking you through these trials, still being there with you, being your strength. In 1 Peter 1 verse 7, it says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perishes, um, though it be tried in a fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. See, the trial of your faith. And then another example on this point is all the heroes of faith that you read about in Hebrews 11. Think about all those men and those ladies that are mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11. And what, did they have smooth sailing lives? Not at all. You have Abraham, you have Moses, you have people who went through some severe trials in there. 
And they are heroes of faith because their trials worked faith in them. So, let us seek to know God more and understand His Word better, that our faith can be stronger and we can serve Him better. Let us see our trials as those opportunities and let's study the Word. Let's seek this knowledge so that we can, have, so we can increase in our faith and be into greater service of God. All right, back to our text, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. It says here, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Now, I just want to mention this in passing, that Jesus Christ is divine. He is God manifest in the flesh. It says here that, it speaks here about now God Himself. So you have God the Father and God the Son mentioned here in this text. Now, just a few things about Jesus' divinity. Jesus being divine, Jesus being God incarnate. He had divine titles. Right? So that's one of the things Jesus, or that we, the reason we say Jesus is divine. He had divine titles. You can look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is called the Almighty. There's a divine title. Then we have in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Matthew 2, in Matthew 2 when it speaks about Jesus, it says his name will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. So, Divine titles is all over Scripture given to Jesus Christ. That's the first reason we say Jesus is divine. The second thing, the reason we say Jesus is divine is because Jesus did divine works. Jesus created. In Colossians 1 verse 16, it says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on, in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. So Jesus created. Have a look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Another divine work of Jesus. Actually, John chapter 11, you read about the resurrection of Lazarus. And so Jesus raised the dead. That is a divine work. In Matthew chapter 8, you don't have to go there, but we read about Jesus controlling the elements. They're in the ship and he controls the wind and the sea. And so Jesus controls the elements. That's that's another divine work. Another reason we say Jesus is divine is because he received and accepted divine worship. When people worshipped him as divine, which was completely illegal according to Jewish tradition, you are not allowed to have any other gods or worship any other god except God Almighty. 
And so Jesus accepted worship, which means he accepts the, that he is called God. And other people see him and worship him as God. Probably one of the most famous ones is Thomas, when he saw Jesus after the resurrection, and he said, my Lord and my God. That's what he called Jesus. All right, and then the last one is in John chapter 10. Um, Jesus not only received divine worship, Jesus claimed to be divine. John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 30. It says, I and my Father are one. Then it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. From, um, for which of those works do you stone me? Then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And so they knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said in verse 30, I and my Father are one. He is claiming to be divine. Have a look at chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 44. John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but in him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. He's essentially saying, if you see me, you see God. If you believe in me, you believe in God. And so there's another claim to divinity. Have a look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 9. John 14 verse 9. It says, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Do you see how Jesus definitely claims to be divine? And these claims of him were affirmed by the resurrection. It was affirmed by the resurrection. He had power over death, and that's something only God has, power over life and death. And so Jesus affirmed his divine claims by resurrecting. Now, what is the relevance of this? Why is this important to know? Well, when you speak to people, you'll find, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe that Jesus is divine. You will also find Muslims, obviously, that would say he is just a prophet. So you will find many, and even in, even in African religions, when I was studying that up, a lot, of, a lot of African, you know, like your Zionists and those types of things, a lot of them also won't see Jesus necessarily as divine, but a great prophet in which there are many messiahs to follow after him. And so Jesus is not that position whom he has. So you need to know this and you need to know where and why we believe that Jesus is divine. Now, back to our text. In verse 11, it says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ says, Direct our way unto you. Direct our way unto you. Have a look at Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And here Paul makes a similar statement. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. It says here, And the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So the one is a direction to bring them to them, to the Thessalonians. This is a directing of your heart 
into love. So Paul clearly wanted God to lead and direct his life. How would God have done this? How does God direct? How does God guide our life? Well, firstly, I want you to note that what was Paul asking direction for? He was asking God to direct him back to these people so that they can be discipled, so that they can grow in their faith. Okay? The other thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, what is he asking God for? He's asking God to direct their hearts into love. Do you see how what Paul asks for is a very important issue? It's something that is close to God's heart. So the first thing when it comes to asking God for guidance and direction, I would say is that God will certainly take your request for direction more seriously if it's biblical. Right? A lot of times we ask things that are not biblical. <laughs> and so to expect God to guide you there is a false starting point. Then secondly, what does God's direction mean? Have a look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 46. In theology class, we speak about the law of first mention. The law of first mention. And that means it's often an interesting study to do, to go back in the Bible and see where the first word, or first time a certain word is used. Because it often gives you a very good idea of how this word is going to be used throughout Scripture. The law of first mention. So, Genesis chapter 46. And we're looking at the word direct. Genesis chapter 46 verse 28. And it says here, And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And, and they came unto the land of Goshen. So what is this directing here? It's kind of, it has the sound of point out or show, right? That's what it says. It came, look there, it says Judah before him to Joseph to direct his face to Goshen. He's coming and saying, this is where we need to go. Look there. I'm pointing it out. I'm showing to you. Do you see how that is, in a way, how it's being used? And then I looked at this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is yara. I don't know how you pronounce that. Y-A-R-A-H. Yara. It means, literally, to point out, to teach, to inform, or to instruct. You see how that direction is not God taking the wheel taking over and you just mindlessly going wherever God, that's not God's direction. God's direction is one where he points out, he shows you, he teaches you. And so with that in mind, we can see how this is not contrary to your free will. God's direction is not contrary to your free will. He will have a desire for you. He will point it out to you. He will inform and instruct you. But it's not contrary to your free will. You seek him, he points you in the right direction. That is essentially what God's direction means. Now, if that is what, how does God direct? How does God direct us? Have a look at Proverbs chapter 3. Probably the second best known verse in the Bible. Okay, maybe not third. Judge not is probably the second best. Or first, I'm not sure. <laughs> Proverbs. Chapter 3. So how does God direct? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. It says, In all thy ways, bless you, 
It says, in all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So, the first way in which God directs is by you acknowledging him. This word acknowledge means to know, to recognize or to confess. To know, to recognize or to confess. So you look back and you recognize what God has done. You know God, so you know His character. You, you praise Him in every situation, so you know Him, you recognize Him, and you confess Him as the leader, the director of your life. And if you do that, in other words, if you include Him in your future plans and you thank Him for the past help and guidance, then He will direct you. It is a, it's, that thankfulness plays such an important role. It's a constant looking to Him, thanking, on, thanking Him, thinking on Him. And um, that is how he then directs you, through acknowledging him, by seeing him in everything that you do. The second thing is in Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11. How does God also direct you? Proverbs 11, verse 5. Proverbs 11, verse 5. It says, The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright, oh. <laughs> righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. The righteousness of the perfect. When I read this, I see someone who is made righteous. We are made the righteousness of God in Christ, right? And so the righteous are directed. And so this is the leading of the Spirit. I would say you seek, you acknowledge God in everything. That's the first thing. The th- second thing is, you need to be saved. You need to be led by the Spirit. All right? And so you become less. The Spirit becomes more in you. And so He leads you. In um, John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. Okay? So the second way in which God directs your life is through His Spirit. And then lastly, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, the next book. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. God directs through wisdom. God directs through wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10. It says, If the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he be put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. Wisdom is profitable to direct. How do you obtain wisdom? Well, through Scripture, definitely. But through counsel, right? If you have other believers in your life who can counsel you, who can help you, who can guide you, who have gone through things, they have wisdom you don't have. And the Scripture is a lot more wisdom than anyone has. And so study God's Word. See counsel when you need it. And that is how God will direct you. John Gill says... The excellency of wisdom, that it puts a man in the right way of doing things and doing them right. It directs him to take the best methods and pursue the best ways and means of doing things, both for his own good and for the good of others. So I'm sure I speak on behalf of most of us when I say we would all like to be guided by God. Well, then let's acknowledge him in all our ways. 
And the real practical way to do this is through thankfulness. Acknowledging Him in all our ways. Paul understood this and practiced it. And that's why we read that in 1 Thessalonians. How he thanked God for these people. And then he also prayed that God would direct him to them. So through thankfulness, God also directs. A thankful heart is a, is a God-pleasing heart. It is a practical way to acknowledge God in all you do. A thankful heart is a content heart. As Elizabeth Elliot said, God has promised to supply all your needs. What we don't have now, we don't need now. Then faith, we saw that faith grows with knowledge and trials and that it is not blind. Let's see all opportunities around us to increase in faith and to use it to make a difference for the Lord. And lastly, we saw that God's direction does not nullify your free will. His direction is Him pointing out the way you should go and instructing you. This is done through you acknowledging Him in all you do, letting the Spirit lead you, and seeking wisdom through counsel and His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the counsel. Thank You for the direction, the guidance that we find in Your Word. Lord, um, may we not live our lives blindly following our own minds when we have such great access to your word and such a great guide. Thank you for your spirit dwelling in us, leading us, showing us, helping us grow and become more like your son. We ask that you would please change us, Lord. Help us to live thankful lives, lives that are always directed to you, thinking on you and thanking you for what you have done and what you will do for us. Help us to end those moments of trials, look to you, and see how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.